Well, let me tell you something I am really thankful for right now. Uh, I believe that the Lord prepared our church for the crisis of this year by giving to us a few years of unity and then preserving that unity as a church through this crisis. And, and here's what I mean. When you look around us, I think one of the big lessons that the nation is teaching us right now is that a divided people is not well equipped to handle a crisis, right? When you get a people that don't trust their government, two parties that don't trust each other, a number of people who wonder if the experts who are speaking really have our best interests in mind, and then you throw a group like that into a crisis like this, you can have a real mess on your hands. And a perfect picture of that is what's going on outside the church right now. The reason that what's going on in here makes me thankful is that it looks entirely different from that. The Lord prepared us with a couple of years of great unity as a church. And now he's allowed us to picture that in a way that looks so different from what's going on around us. It's just amazing to think about how we've had to suspend our members' meetings since March now. That's, what is that, like nine months now since we've been able to have a members' meeting and members have had a formal voice into the things that we are doing. But because we all trust our leaders and we know they're not out to get us, there's been no one who has complained about that. Before that, we had a series of many votes in a row where there was not a single no vote for a measure that was brought up. That's not always a sign of unity, but when you look under the hood, I think what's going on here is unity. And perhaps the funniest of all these pictures, when I mentioned it last night, it made us all chuckle. But for this annual meeting that we're about to have, we are actually going to do mail-in voting for this annual meeting, right? And not a single person has complained about that. Now, why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, we all trust our church office administrator and we trust our deacons and nobody thinks that any of these people is going to throw away a vote that they don't like, right? When you have mutual trust among people, when you have brotherly love among people, when no one is out to get everybody then it's much easier to go through a crisis together. That's just one picture of God's goodness to us in these past months. It's beautiful. And what I want to tell you today is that it is essential if we want to grow as a church. Some of us remember years past when we've had seasons of division and it was really hard to grow our church during seasons of division. Visitors come in and they can smell a quarrel from far away, just from the lobby. They can tell if the people are fighting. It's tough to grow a church in a season like that. If we want to grow, if we want to be effective for the gospel, we will have to maintain this unity that God has given us. That's another reason I'm so thankful we're coming upon this text today. I think that what the Lord may be pleased to do this week and what I have been asking him to do is between the unity he's given us for the past three or four years and between the way that this crisis has sort of knit us together and given us more love for each other and then in his providence coming upon this text about unity today, oh, I, I pray that what he's doing is sealing that unity in and making it something that lasts for decades. Because the question here is, is our newfound unity, is it a trend that will one day be reversed or is it the new normal, 
right? Have we entered into a new era of decades of unity or is this just a short-term thing? And the answer depends on us in this room. I'd go as far as to say the answer depends on whether we choose to follow the guidance that the Lord gives us in this text today. It'll give us on one hand a picture of how we got here. How did we get to this unity that we have? And on the other hand, some instruction on what we need to do to keep it. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Titus, to chapter three. And we're gonna start at verse eight. We're gonna read verses eight through 11 as we look at what is probably the second to last message in our walk through the book of Titus. Here's what the Spirit says. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent, they're profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The words of the Lord. Okay, so what we have in these words, I believe, is God's recipe for church unity. And through it, what I pray the Lord would be pleased to do today is land us squarely in a new phase of unity that will last for decades. So much that mutual brotherly love and unifying together in the name of Jesus will just be the norm here. And we will forget what some days in the past have looked like. As we look at the recipe, the first thing that I notice here that I think we ought to notice together is that the key to unity is a little bit counterintuitive. I don't know about you, but I was taught and trained up with the idea that if you wanna have unity, you need to be as permissible as possible towards ideas that are different from yours, right? Listen to those who disagree with you, permit a variety of perspectives on issues, and indeed, in the things that are not essential, that is important. If somebody has a different view of what the millennium will look like than you, well, you do need to listen to that person. You do need to be able to talk about that in a way that is peaceable. But it's a little counterintuitive here that the first key to unity is to insist on something. This is what Paul tells Titus to do. And he's using strong language here. Insist is a strong word here. So he is saying, this is something, whatever he's talking about, something you must put your foot down on. Do not back down. Put on your Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers because I won't back down, right? Do not back down on this one thing. And, and what is it? Well, he refers to it as these things later in verse eight. And early in verse eight, he says the saying, the saying is trustworthy. So whatever he's talking about there, that's the thing we gotta insist on. That's the thing we can't back down on if we want unity as a church. So let's, let's dive in and figure out what these things are and what the saying is. I'll start with the saying. So he starts verse eight with the saying is trustworthy. 
He is referring to the verses before where evidently he has been proclaiming the gospel and taken it into some form of creed or phrase or saying that people would say in that day. Maybe something that Paul wrote and they sang as a hymn often, or maybe something that Christians just said, a quick way to recite the gospel. And this is what he says. It may begin in verse four. It may not begin until verse six or seven. He says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the saying right there. It may start all the way back at four, may not start till five or six. He doesn't really formally begin it. But we have enough there to know what he means when he says the saying. It's that message of the gospel. Jesus saved us not because of works that we did, but because of his own mercy. That is the saying that is trustworthy. Jesus saved us not because of our works, but because of his mercy. And what he says here is insist on these things, right? That's the verbs, right? These, the words, these things. That's something he says actually a few times, these things. And he's talking about the overall content, the big message of chapters two and three. You'll remember we've backed up a few times in this series. Titus divides neatly into chapter one and then chapters two and three. It's God's recipe for a healthy church, his formula for a healthy church. Chapter one is healthy leadership, install healthy leaders. Chapters two and three, healthy Christians. Christians who trust in the gospel and live out the gospel in their everyday lives, right? So in this section of chapter two and three, he is going back and forth between proclaiming the gospel and talking about the life that flows from the gospel, right? First, he gives instructions to people in different age groups, and then he proclaims the gospel, and then he gives some instruction on submitting to the government and being gracious, and then he proclaims the gospel, and he goes back and forth between the gospel and the gospel life, the gospel and the gospel life. And a few times, he sprinkles phrases like these things in there. Look at chapter two, verse one with me. He says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine being the reliable, healthy, trustworthy teaching of the gospel, the gospel that gives life. Teach that, teach what accords with it. That's the lifestyle that goes along with it. Then you zoom ahead to verse 15, the last verse in chapter two. He says, declare these things, right? He said to teach it before now. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then he goes back into some more of the instruction, gospel, gospel life. Verse eight says, on two different occasions, once I want you to insist on these things, and then later on in the next sentence, the very end of verse eight, these things are excellent and profitable for people. You see that theme, these things, these things, over and over. Every time, what he means is the gospel content and the gospel life that we live, the message of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins and the life that that leads us into. That's what these things refers to. That is how we arrive at our main point today. He says, I want you to insist on these things. He's referring to the gospel and the gospel life. So here's the big point today. Preserve unity by insisting on the gospel. This is the first and biggest key to unity as a church. 
those of us with influence, those of us who teach, those of us who preach, those of us who vote at members' meetings, we must insist on two things, the message of the gospel and the lifestyle that the gospel leads to. Now, if you're new here and you have never heard the gospel before, it may frustrate you a little bit that I've talked about the gospel a lot and I haven't actually told you what it is yet. And so if you've been going here for many years, you'll just rejoice again to hear it again. If you've never heard it before, here is the gospel message, the truth that we proclaim, that God has saved us out of a situation that is, more, is just worse than we ever could have imagined. So bad, in fact, I mean, if we just consider, if God is real, and he cares what we do, then we're in trouble, right? And the truth is, God is real, and he does care what we do. And so if we just look that truth in the eye and consider how we have been living, our intuition should just know that we are headed for something bad one day. When we breathe our last, our life expires, and we must go before God in judgment. He's there. He cares what we've done for our whole lives, and that spells bad for us, right? The good news is God himself is willing to save you out of that plight, and you don't have to earn your way to get it. He's willing to do it because his heart towards you is merciful, the way that he has done is he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, God made man, born of a virgin, just incredible story. We'll, we'll celebrate it here at Christmas time. Sent his son, born of this Virgin Mary, lives a perfect life, dies on a cross, rises from the dead in his death, paying for every last one of the sins of his people. And in his resurrection, guaranteeing the resurrection from the dead for his people. If that salvation and that forgiveness is something that you want, even better news, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. God just holds it in his hand and says, you can have it. All you gotta do is reach out and take it. That's something we call faith. It just means trusting that this Jesus is who he says he is, who the Bible says he is. Trusting that when he offers you forgiveness, he means it and he's powerful enough to do it. Just put yourself at his feet and say, okay, save me. That's faith. And if in that heart of yours now is faith, you can rest assured he will save you on the last day. That's the good news of the gospel. Paul's point here is that these things, that gospel is profitable for people. In other words, it doesn't just save you from judgment and hell. It changes you today if you will embrace it. That's why he also says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God or have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. When the gospel is proclaimed and people believe in it and trust in it, it creates the sort of person who devotes themselves to good works. What I'm saying is that the gospel, if you trust in it, the Spirit of God will enter you, dwell in your heart forever, and change you, make you a totally new person, a person that wants to follow in Jesus' ways, a, a person that wants to worship Jesus, who looks forward to Sunday as the best day of the week, because you get to be with the people of God, and you get to hear the Word of God preach. This is how the gospel will transform people, and it will be profitable, reliable in your life in exactly that way. Now, what does that have to do with unity, you might ask? 
Well, to have unity with any group, you need two things. You need some sort of center to rally around, a cause or a leader you love or something that we all believe in that we can rally around. And you also need the sort of people who don't squabble and bicker and sin against each other, but the sort of people who forgive each other and love each other and will be good to each other, right? You gotta have something to unite around and you gotta be good to each other, right? So it takes a certain quality of person and it takes a certain cause to believe in. The spirit of the age right now is let's all try to get unity just by getting a cause that we can all believe in, right? So you see great companies like SpaceX is built now with the vision, a unifying vision of making life interplanetary, which is a compelling thing to think about. Wow, humanity on Mars and Jupiter, and oh, that would, that would, that's crazy, right? That's compelling. It's a clear vision, and all of the people there are working hard around that united vision. And the spirit of the age says, yeah, give them that vision, let them work for it, and you've got people aligned around a center, and then you will have unity. But the truth is, even if you all believe in something like that together, well, we're all still sinners, right? We're still gonna squabble, we're still gonna bicker, we're still gonna have feuds, and it's not gonna lead to any true and lasting unity. Sometimes, though, it does lead to beautiful things. I mean, having a common cause, especially when it's a good cause, can be a beautiful thing. One of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of this came right here in Indianapolis in 2005 and 2006. I was living in Louisville at the time, just getting into the NFL and watching football for the first time. And I was watching as Peyton Manning was in his stride. I mean, you guys remember these days, like he was throwing touch, him and Marvin Harrison were connecting all the time. A lot of fun to watch. A lot of what got me into the game was watching his success there. In 2005, they had the best season they had had yet. 14-2 and two record, they finished it with. They felt like they were on top of their game, going into the playoffs, ready to try and win some games in the playoffs for the first time in a long time. And then Coach Tony Dungy got the worst phone call that he has ever gotten, a worse phone call than I have ever gotten. He picked it up, and he learned that his adult son had been found dead at the scene and learned a little bit later that it was probably a suicide, that it in fact probably was, and as you can imagine, just, just crushed and gutted. He spent a couple days mourning, took a few days off of work, uh, and his wife approached him and said, I know this sounds crazy, but you, you need work. You need to go back to work. You're not gonna be happy. You're not gonna process all of this grieving if you don't go back to the locker room and keep doing the things you love to do. And he took her advice. He went back to work, a broken, grieving man. Uh, they tried to rally things together. They lost their first playoff game. I mean, they just felt like they were at the depths, right? And then the players report that in that off season, there was something about watching their coach that they love. He was a good man. He treated people well watching him grieve, just seeing his humanity like that, that they just grew to love their coach much more than they ever had. And all of a sudden, in the training camps in the summer, his unorthodox strategies, they started listening to him and saying, you know what, no reason to push back against this man that we've grieved together with. Let's just listen to him. And they, they rallied around Coach Dungy, came back in the fall and played the best football I think Indianapolis has ever seen. Just won out for much of that season 
Peyton's throwing touchdowns again. They went on to win the Super Bowl that year against the Chicago Bears and a great victory for Tony and for all of those other people on that team. It was a beautiful picture about how rallying around one good person really can bring some measure of unity and be beautiful. Without discounting that beauty at all, just consider this. The message of the gospel not only gives us something to rally around, but actually changes people fundamentally. Right? Rallying around a good coach, that brought out the best in those players. That's the most that it could do, and that alone was beautiful. But what about a message that doesn't just bring out the best in you, but changes you from the ground up? turns you from the kind of person who fights and squabbles and bickers into the kind of person that shows preference for others. That's the difference between uniting around the gospel and uniting around any other cause. You can get some unity by uniting around some other cause, but if you unite around the gospel, now you've united around a message that not only pulls people together, but changes people. Now, over the years, you will have a church full of people who don't bicker and squabble because the Lord's changed them. Full of people who are offended but don't offend someone back. Full of people who get a little hurt by what somebody does and don't react in anger but instead react in grace and forgiveness. And now you can have true gospel brotherhood, true unity. So the first point here, the biggest point, is to preserve unity by insisting on the gospel. Because not only does it give people something they can rally around, it also fundamentally changes people from the ground up. That's why Paul says these things are profitable. They're excellent. These people devote themselves to good works. Before we move on to the next point, I just want to apply this to those of you that hold influence in our church. Some of you teach Sunday school and you have students that look up to you. Some of you mentor people, you've got people who look up to you. Some have influence in other ways, some through positions, some just through influence because you've been here for years and people know that nothing will happen in our church, nothing will change in our church if you don't give your approval to it, right? Some of us have that level of influence. In fact, most churches have, and I embrace this because I think it's a good thing, most churches have what's called an old guard, right? A handful of people who have earned enough respect in the community that no agenda to change anything and no attempt to do anything is gonna work if two or three of that handful of people are against it, right? And those people have a good function. They guard the church from falling into error. If you're one of those people, I just wanna speak boldly to you for a moment and, and press upon you the weight that these words call from you. Paul says, I want you to insist on these things. If you have any role in guarding our church from going the wrong direction, feel the weight of that. That responsibility is on you. Insist on two things, the content of the gospel and the life that the gospel brings. If you get to choose one thing about how our church operates 30 years after you have gone home to be with the Lord, let that one thing be the gospel. Let the old guard continue to guard the gospel and the gospel alone. I will go as far as to say that you can visit a church for two, three, four months, get a feel for how that church works, who are the influencers, what's going on socially here, 
And you can predict with some imperfect degree of certainty where that church is headed just by asking one question. What is the old guard guarding? They're gonna guard something, but what are they guarding? Are they guarding their preferences? Are they guarding things looking and sounding the way they want them to look and sound? Are they guarding their position? Or are they guarding the doctrinal fidelity of the church? Are they guarding the gospel? That, I believe, tells you much of everything you need to know about the future of the church. And those of you that play that role here and guard the gospel, I want you to know how much I thank God for you. He has used you through the years. He will continue to use you. Let us guard the gospel together. Let's move on to the next point, the flip side. If the first point is to preserve unity by insisting on the gospel, the next one is the inverse, and it is to avoid the passions and falsehoods that tend to divide churches, right? So this is a positive form of this that we just had. Here's the negative, here's what not to do, here's what to avoid. He says this in verse nine. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You can probably see how that's an inverse there, right? In fact, he uses opposite language, right? These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people, but the divisive things, he says, they're unprofitable. They are worthless. They're set as the opposite there. The reason that they are unprofitable and worthless is that they're powerless to change you. You latch yourself to some false teaching or some cause of preferentiality or putting yourself above others, that's not going to change your heart and make you a better person. So they are unprofitable, they are worthless. He walks through four things to avoid, three of them really particular to that era, but the concept remains. First, he says, avoid foolish controversies. Now, foolish controversies still exist today, but I think he has in mind there the controversies of that day. He often used that phrase to refer to the false teachings he was fighting. Genealogies was another false idea that was prevalent that day. People would argue about, well, I, I'm a descendant of the prophet Hosea, and so you better listen to me and not listen to that guy and make up all this stuff. And Paul just says, who cares who you are a descendant of? It doesn't make you better than anybody. Avoid those kind of arguments. The third thing he says to avoid is dissensions, and those still exist in the same form today. A dissension is when a faction or group forms within the church, like, right, we're the group who wants this this way, and they're the group who wants it that way, and so we begin to form into parties and we fight against each other, that factioning and group forming based on disagreement. It says avoid those dissensions. That still happens in the same way today. And then finally, quarrels about the law. One thing they would quarrel about them was how much does a Christian need to obey the law? Uh, the answer was very plain that the apostles handed down. Christians are not bound by the law. Stop arguing about it is basically what they said. Avoid those quarrels. So you have really two things. False ideologies that are creeping their way into the church and causing division. And those sort of passions and desires that we tend to fight about. The things that we want badly enough, we would fight with our brothers and sisters about them. Both of those still alive and well today, just in very different forms. 
Today it often takes the form of I want such and such a thing to look or sound like this and I'm willing to fight for it. I'm willing to grumble and gossip about it if I don't get my way. I'm willing to form a group that will go to war over this thing. I'm willing to form a faction over it. Or it can look like I want my ministry to be preferred over these other ministries. I don't like the way things are arranged. I want more prominence for me and what I'm doing and I'm willing to grumble and gossip and to fight about it. That's the passions side of it. On the other side, there are many ideologies that are trying to creep their way into the church and they are false, they are unprofitable, they aren't worth anything. There are conspiracy theories online right now that are wild and fanciful, and some Christians are falling for them. One of them goes as far as to claim that Hillary Clinton is the leader of a group that secretly runs the world through some kind of ring of pedophiles and cannibals that secretly work through all the elites and run the world. I know that probably sounds crazy to many of you, but that's spreading online right now, and I know Christians who believe things like that. False ideas like that, we can't let them into the church. Can you imagine the division that that would cause if half of our church insisted that were true and the other half didn't? It would tear us apart. We can't let them even in the door, those ideas. At the same time, there are all sorts of other false ideologies, so many different forms of the movement that says, I define myself and everyone has to affirm whatever I believe that I am on the inside, right? So many forms of this out there, I couldn't go into all of them, they all have that at the root, right? I have the authority to define what I am, you must acknowledge what I am is the root idea. The hundred different forms of that out there, we can't let that into the church. It will tear the church apart if we are willing to do this. Identity politics that tries to cater into different groups. I mean, there's just, just so many false ideologies out there. Prosperity gospel, the self-help gospel of suburbia, just on and on and on it can go. And in the same way that Paul says, avoid those genealogy things, avoid those conspiracies, avoid this, that we have to avoid all of those ideologies that could creep in and could divide the church. Some of that rests on me. When they creep up to the point that they become a threat to the church, I've got to start teaching on them. It becomes difficult because there are many of them out there. Tough to decide which ones to emphasize. Some of that rests on our teachers to teach clearly the scriptures, and much of it rests on us to watch our hearts and watch our minds. So the point there is simply to avoid the desires and the false ideas that creep in, that take uh, precedence over the gospel and begin to divide churches. So that's what we got so far. Number one, insist on the gospel, preserve unity that way. Number two, preserve unity by avoiding the passions and ideologies that come in and divide churches. If you're willing to do that, what you're going to find is Right? You're saying, okay, I want to walk in this, I want to, I want to embrace the gospel, I don't want to embrace this other stuff. You still are friends with a lot of people, right? You still go to church with a lot of people. And it turns out all the people you go to church with are still sinners. And so we're still going to do things wrong. And there will still be moments when you are trying to walk in unity with the church and the person next to you is not. That's going to put you in an uncomfortable position. That is what verses 10 and 11 help us to handle. So that's where we move next. What do I do when I'm trying to do this in unity, but the people next to me or someone next to me is not? And the word is hard and firm, but it is good for us. All of Jesus' ways are good. Here it is, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up 
division. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That probably unsettles a lot of us. And the truth is, if we kind of look at our history as a church and the things we're good at, the things we aren't great at, uh, one of the reasons we have the unity have, we have right now is because the first two things we've done really well. Right? This is a church that insisted on the gospel for all of its history, a church that has uh, not allowed false ideologies into the door and has had moments where preferences got the best of it, but by and large, as long as I've been here at least, is not willing to let preferences or factions or things like this get in the way. But one area where we are weaker is dealing with conflict in a way that's proactive. I was talking with one of our deacons once, and we were just talking about, okay, what are some of our strengths and weaknesses as a church? And he said, you know, we just don't have a way to deal with conflict. And so when it happens, sometimes it just brews for a while, and we never actually deal with it. We need some kind of recipe, some kind of formula, plan of what to do when there's conflict or disunity in the church. And so if there's one way that the Lord could change what we're doing here, I think that this is it. I think when it comes down to it, we look at instructions like this, and we say, oh man, warning a person who stirs up disunity, that, that sounds scary, I don't want to do that. And then we read the end of the verse to have nothing more to do with them if they persist. And that doesn't sound graceful and loving like what we want to do. And so we just have a hard time processing and knowing what do we do with that, right? How do we handle that? Well, here's the step that he gives us, a three-step process. First is to just give one gentle warning Hear somebody stirring up division. Often we do this through, you know, through gumbling, through gossip, through factioning, through, you know, secret meetings after the meetings. Say, hey, let's band together and try to get all these people on our team. All these kinds of ways we do this. Someone starts doing that, stirring up disunity in the church. First step is just to give gentle warning, loving warning. Usually that works. If it doesn't work, second step is another warning, right? Warn them again. And after that, it says... Distance yourself from them, right? Don't have anything more to do with them. And the reason he says you can do that is in the next verse, because then you know that such a person is warped, sinful, because they are self-condemned. What does he mean when he says that? Well, one of the big themes here has been that the gospel changes people, right? Gospel makes you new. One of the changes the gospel brings into your heart is that when you have found yourself in sin, and someone you love comes alongside you and says, hey, hey don't, don't do that. Let's walk in Jesus' ways together. A heart that loves the gospel is going to be tender toward that. It's going to be willing to receive that, especially after a second warning from somebody that you love. A heart that hears warnings from someone that they love twice and insists on spreading division still in the church what he's saying here, it's, it's strong, but what he's saying is that person is revealing to you that their faith may not actually be where they claim it is. The person's revealing to you that their trust may not be in Jesus. This is what he means when he says they are self-condemned, right? Their actions are showing that their faith is not genuine. So rather than be angry at them or try to punish them, we should be scared for people like that, people who persist in sin and will not turn around. 
that ought to scare us. First John says that the one who goes on sinning, right, who insistently keeps on sinning has neither seen God nor known him. Jesus says in Matthew 19, right, when you have pleaded with someone to turn around from a sin over and over and over again, you bring friends in on it, they still won't turn around, eventually you've got to treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. It just means like an outsider. We love outsiders. You still love them. But don't let them trick themselves into believing that they are a Christian if they refuse to act like a Christian. There are two principles at play here. On one hand... If a person refuses to act like a Christian and turn from sin when they are confronted, especially something like division in the church, they're revealing perhaps that their faith is not on the gospel in the first place. So you can't have meaningful Christian fellowship with someone who won't act like a Christian, right? That's one principle at play. There's another principle at play in Proverbs 20, verse 19, which says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. The wisdom there is, if you've got a friend who is prone to gossip, slander, grumbling, just using their tongue against people like that, well, it's only a matter of time before that tongue turns on you, right? And so you might be wise to distance yourself from that friendship anyway, because who knows when they're gonna turn on you. So two principles are you can't have meaningful Christian fellowship if they wanna act like a Christian. You can't have a strong friendship with them if they're proving not to be a good friend. And so the instruction is distance yourself from a person like that in the church. The way that this would look personally, I mean, we look at that and I know that is, for some of you, it's gotta be, oh man, I don't wanna do that. Uh, Here's how it would look. If you're hearing it, you're saying, okay, Some of Jesus' ways are hard, but they're all good. I want to follow this. I want to do this. In the moment, what does it look like? Here's what it looks like. Say you have a friend who's posting crazy divisive things on Facebook or a fellow church member who in Sunday school is spreading slander or grumbling or something, and you can see people in the church starting to kind of turn against each other and the division to spread. First step is just a gentle, quick, loving warning. I would advise you think of exactly what you're gonna say in one short sentence before you say it so you don't stumble on your words when you get it out, but a simple sentence like, oh, let's be careful not to gossip, right? Let's be careful not to gossip. That's only six words. You can remember that, memorize it, just say it right out. Something real simple and gentle like that from someone they love, that's step one. And most of the time, right, because we go to church with fellow Christians who love the gospel and love to repent of our sin and receive forgiveness, That's going to be all it takes, right, if we're in a good, loving environment like that. On a rare occasion, that won't be enough. And on the second occasion, you'll be with the person, and they'll start doing it again. Second step is another loving, courageous warning. But I would advise, this isn't in the text, but I would just advise the second one probably needs to be a little more firm than the first. And you probably need to refer to the first one, something like, hey, I I warned you about this last week when we talked. We gotta be really careful here not to sow division. A little more emphatic, just as loving, maybe referring to the last time as well. And then if they insist after that, you just have to follow the advice of the Bible, knowing that a person like that is warped, sinful, their actions are condemning themselves, they continue to go on and spread division, you just have to distance yourself from that person. Doesn't mean you love them any less. In fact, you're probably gonna be praying for them more because it'll break your heart. But you must distance yourself from that person. That's not an easy word to follow right there. 
And I just wanna remind you, as I've said many times over the last few months, some of Jesus' ways are hard, but all of his ways are good. So let's resolve to follow them all. So we have then before us some, some difficult work to do. Uh, if I were to look back and say, well, you know, what's going on here? I think on one hand, this text gives us a window into how we got the unity that we have now. How did we get it? Well, it was simple. Many of you who were leaders three, four, five years ago stood up and said, we're gonna be gospel people. Gospel people are people of prayer, so we're gonna be people of prayer. We're gonna stop focusing on some of these other things we focus on, we're gonna focus on the gospel. That gospel focus that some of you brought to our church, that is what has given us this unity. And you know who you are, and I want you to hear me from my voice, Kim and you, you were a part of uniting this church, and by the time I got here a year and a half ago, the church was already well united by the power of the gospel. Additionally, by resisting and even avoiding false ideas, which our church has been good at for 60 years now, and I pray that that continues. By turning from some of the preferential things that had enslaved some of us and saying that's not going to define us. That's how we got where we are. How do we continue it for the next 20, 30 years, making sure that we continue to be a church of unity? We continue insisting on the gospel. We continue avoiding ideologies and passions that would divide our church. And when inevitably some of the things that cause division creep up, and they will, when they creep up, we confront them early. Right? It's easy to pull a dandelion that's one day old. It's difficult to pull a dandelion that's a year old. Right? Pull, the, pull it early, take care of it early, confront the division early, and then we can walk together into unity. That's what I think the Lord's calling from us today. After this, we have one more message from the book of Titus about how Christian warmth and open-handedness can strengthen a church. And as we close it out, let's just pray together that God will make us the healthiest, strongest church in Greenwood, Indiana. Let's pray.